0: Cesar Chavez was an American labor leader and civil rights activist who co-founded the United Farm Workers Union in the 1960s. He was instrumental in organizing labor as it challenged industry to improve working conditions for people in the fields in California and elsewhere. Miriam Powell is a journalist and a biographer of Cesar Chavez. I'm Juan, and I'm part of the team that produces C-SPAN Podcasts. As a listener, you can help us continue to produce our quality podcasts about history, books, and current events with a tax-deductible contribution to C-SPAN's nonprofit operations. Visit cspan.org slash donate to learn more. Thanks for listening. Who was Cesar Chavez and what was his place in American history?
1: Oh, just a, just a small question to start off with, huh? Um, <laughs> Peter Chavez was, you know, he was he's, he's often called a labor leader, but I would describe him a little bit differently. I think he was the leader of a very important social movement in this country. Um, he was an American who was born in 1927. On uh, his uh, parents grew up on his grandparents' um, ranch in Arizona. And became a migrant farm worker when he was 12 and grew up to found the United Farm Workers Union, which was um, the first really uh, effective labor union for farm workers in this country, and became um, in many ways most important. I would say both he and the movement that he founded became most important in terms of launching and being an important piece of what we came to to know as the Chicano Rights Movement and the rise of Latino power and political power, which he prophesied long before uh, many other people in this country did. So he was a sort of profoundly important national leader who is most associated with farm workers and the union that he founded, but whose legacy and importance um, goes far beyond that.
0: You mentioned his uh, early years, born in Arizona, 1927, to a Mexican-American family. What were those early years like for Cesar Chavez. What did he see and experience that led uh, to his uh, later work?
1: Well, it's very interesting because his earliest years, his first 12 years, he grew up um, in a a very sort of um, what he described as and his siblings described as a very pleasant experience on his grandpa and his sort of extended family um on a on a ranch outside of Yuma, arizona and it was only when he was 12 that his family lost that land to tax foreclosure and they became part of the migrant stream packed everything into a car and came to california and he he arrived in california as a as a 12 year old um at the same time that the grapes of wrath by john steinbeck is published and so that that world of migrant really migrant labor going from place to place, finding places to sleep, um and, and that becomes his world as a as a young uh young teenager. And what he sees is the way that farm workers are treated, not just physically, but also um particularly for for the Mexicans and the Filipinos, the sort of indignity and lack of respect and racism um, with which they are treated and that really you know obviously shapes his his world and his desires and, and his future um, and and i think it's important to sort of say right there that that at that point in time farm workers were exempt from basically every health labor um, law in the country and that was very deliberately so so that they were they were just really viewed in some ways as 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 farm implements and and that uh, that experience of working, he stayed he's he school after eighth grade, works full time in the field, and that experience obviously you know shapes much of the rest of his life.
0: Did he get much of a formal education?
1: No, he 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 was was obviously very very smart, and and later in life becomes an autodidact and, and, and a, a very. Um, very serious reader, but he leaves school at eighth grade because he needs to work to help his parents um, uh, to, to to make money. There, he's one of five children, um, but also because at that point in time, and, and for some time after, uh, schools in in, in, this, in this country, certainly California, had no reason to edu- no interest in educating Mexicans. And, and you were a Mexican, even though he was a Mexican-American, he was born born here, he was a citizen, um, but the, the level of, of racism towards Mexicans at that point you know, was, was very high, and they were, what was the point in educating you if you were just going to work in the
0: fields anyway? So Cesar Chavez then decided to join the U.S. Navy. He was there for two years, and then when he came out, what other kind of work did he do before he launched the career that we actually know him for?
1: Right, so, um, he, he eventually gets a job. He and his brother get a job in the, in the early 1950s. They are, uh, working a lumber yard in San Jose. Uh, he's gotten out of the field. He's, you know, got a, a relatively good job comparatively to, to being a farm worker. And in 1952, he meets a man named Fred Ross. Fred Ross is a a very important figure in the life of Cedric Chavez. He was an organizer who had helped to found a group called the Community Service Organization, which was in Los Angeles and was just expanding. He was looking for people to expand and to to open a a CSO branch in San Jose. And the CSO is really sort of the first grassroots organization for Mexican-Americans that was founded in California. And... He uh, Ross comes to Chavez's house, meets him, and the two, instinctively immediately see the potential in each other, so to speak. Ross sees and writes a note to himself that night about Chavez being a potentially strong organizer, and Chavez suddenly sees this power of community organizing when he listens to Ross talk about the things that people in Los Angeles were able to do in terms of challenging police brutality um, and and things like that. And so he ends up um, spending 10 years really as an apprentice, and I think this is an important part of his career that many people don't know about, where he really works for the CSO and with Ross. Um, for the next 10 years, until 1962, and learned to be a community organizer um, by going around the state of California, organizing Mexican-Americans, um, and, and doing things like getting people to, to vote and to protest and to use their collective power to change their lives for the
0: better. He started his own family. Uh, during this part of his life. Uh, tell us more about his family, the one that he started.
1: Right. That's an incredibly important piece of the story. Um, he had met a woman named Helen Fadella in uh, in the Central Valley of California. Um, she was from a farm worker family also, and they were married when he got out of the Navy. Um, and by 1962, he um, he has uh, eight children and is really gotten to a pretty good place in the sense that he is the director of the, the executive director of the community service organization, living in Los Angeles, you know, making a, a decent salary, um, and then he makes a very faithful decision.
0: He uh, was looking around the country, was looking around California. What did he see? Paint this picture of what was going on in the country during this time out in the West, especially in the area of agriculture and with workers' rights. What did he see that he wanted to change?
1: He um, you know, this goes back. I said something I said earlier about the complete lack both of rights to protect farm workers. And also, um, you know, the, the lack of respect, and it, it's, I think you can't say this enough that there there, there 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 were no bathrooms in the fields. There was no drinking water. Workers could be fired for you know for any for any reason. There was no 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 need to do to to, to um, provide a cause. They could be made to work for so many hours that they really were their bodies were. Um, you know, just racked with pain, and this, but because of his own experience, and because he also began to see, um, you know, how other organizations and labor unions were organizing, um, and this prompts him to decide that um, what he really wants to do is try to organize a union for farm workers. Um, and this is such an audacious goal that he doesn't even tell people about it for a while because it's 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 so such a
0: scary thing. It's exactly what I wanted to ask you uh, next. Tell us about how the UFW, the United Farm Workers, uh, was born and the many challenges that Cesar Chavez faced in getting it started. So in
1: 1952, he makes this decision that I mentioned, you know, which I think is one of his most courageous moments, where he takes his family, leaves a secure job, and moves to Delano, California, which uh, was the center of the, the table grape industry. He moves to Delano because both he and Helen have family there, so he also knows that he will have some support as he tries to do this thing he wants to do, um, and and he. I, I, goes around and meets with small groups of farm workers all around the Central Valley, and just says to them, using the model and the tools that he learned in the community service organization, doesn't tell them he's forming a union. Says he's forming an organization, and they call it the Farm Worker Association. Um, and and that the idea is that people should be entitled to a decent wage and he also asked them if they would like a newspaper and this is the, the, the look cards that still exists that he handed out where people filled out their information and their name and their 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 contact information and they had to say two answer two questions what do you think you should be paid what's a fair wage and would you be interested in a newspaper to tell you the news of farm workers and the idea that he had the vision that a newspaper for a group of you know largely uneducated Often monolingual uh, workers, you know, would be a vehicle to help organize them. Is I think a really good illustration of sort of his strategic brilliance. Uh, So he goes around, he makes these little groups, and between April. In September of 1962, he has organized enough workers who are interested in this organization that they have the first convention in September of 1962 of what becomes the United Farm Workers. It's then called the Farm Worker Association. A little bit later, they changed the name to the National Farm Workers Association. And that's the beginning of what we know as the UFW.
0: What was it about Cesar Chavez himself that uh, enabled him to meet these challenges in both organizing the uh, union, but with those many challenges to come with the growers, what was it about him?
1: Um, you know, he used the term when he talked about himself, and he talked about some of his other colleagues and 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 and, and uh, co-organizers. He used the term fanatic, and he used that as a as a high praise that you had to be. Fanatic, a fanatic to really do this, to be willing to dedicate your life to it. And he, uh, he had that quality where he, um, this, this was his passion and he was willing to, to you know, do whatever he had to do in order to do this. And he was strategically brilliant at finding ways to organize this. Um, he also was a very charismatic figure in, in unusual ways. We think of that era of the 1960s of charismatic figures like the Kennedys. Um, Chavez was not like that. He was not a particularly good speaker. He was short. He was unassuming looking, but he embodied all of the things and he, he he lived, he walked the walk, he walked the talk. Um, and his willingness to do that impressed people and made them want to follow him. So he had an enormous sort of pull on people um, and and, he, was, and then he was at his best in those early years and doing those things that he had to do, meeting with people one-on-one. I mean, I have met so many people who said to me, and then Caesar asked me to do this, and so I did. You know, he had a, a real magnetic power when he talked to people. Um, and, and, and then the, the last point I make on it is that he was able to show that what he was doing worked. And so he was able to slowly build and to take... Farm workers and convince them you know to the hope had to overcome fear right because the, the the fears of doing something like joining a union when you have no rights and when you've been so beaten down and treated your your whole professional life um, that you have to make that leap of faith and people believed in him he was able to to bring them on board and then he was able to figure out ways to deliver for people and um, so just one small example: when he was first organizing and getting people to pay their 350 a month in dues to his organization, he knew he had to give them something in return. And so one of the first things he did was figure out a way to get people uh, a funeral policy insurance, so that they would have money um, to bury their loved ones when they died. And by that was something that was not readily available to people. It was, not in the but the days where there were GoFundmes, which is what people use now. Right, so um, so he was really shrewd about figuring out, you know, how to how to bring people together and showing them that even poor people collectively could have that kind of power.
0: I've read that he was uh, also highly influenced by people like Gandhi and Martin Luther King Jr. What what did he see in those men?
1: Yes, um, they were important role models for him, and Gandhi in particular. Uh, and he we'll get into this later, but he did long fasts and marches and things that were modeled in some ways after after things that that, that those um, those leaders did as well. And I think what he saw also was that total dedication to their cause. And um, it, he also talked about something that he called. Um, organizational jujitsu Which was taking the strength of the opponent And using it against them And figuring out ways that you could um, Use you know, Literally use the strength of your opponents Against you in, in, the, in the public world In, in, in appealing to, to, the, to the public at large And he was able to build these alliances And attract a national following to this cause And make people across the country care about the cause of farm workers in California.
0: He was also a, a Catholic. Uh, was he very religious? And, and how did his faith shape his approach to his work?
1: He was a Catholic. And his, he talks about his mother being. His mother was an important force in his world and who was very spiritual. Um, he was a Catholic, and not only. I mean, he. he, he his Catholicism obviously shaped him, and 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 he um, he used it. But he also was able to use his religion and Catholicism to appeal to the uh, overwhelmingly Mexican Catholic uh, farmworkers population, and by using sort of religion and in particular nonviolence um, as part of an. The movement's appeal which brought which broadened its appeal and, and, and generated a lot of support from the religion not only um, among the Mexican Catholic farm workers, but was a way to bring religious leaders from around the country and from different faiths together in support of the farm workers. So the religious community nationally becomes a very important force um, for the for the movement itself.
0: Tell us more about that period where Chavez and the union finally got growers to the table to negotiate. How did that play out?
1: So, as we said, in 62, they formed the first Farm Worker Association. He was building slowly, he was not calling it a union because he didn't want to scare people. There was a small, largely Filipino, uh, union at that point in time as well, and in 1965, the Filipino union went on strike in the grapes um, for higher wages. And the, the quick version is essentially that the the the, that, the leader of that union, Mariet Leon, goes to Cesar Chavez and says, "We need you to join us because if the Mexican workers cross the ticket lines, you know, there's no strike. There are far more Mexicans." Uh, who are working with the fields Filipino and the Filipinos. And so even though he doesn't think his union is really ready for this, he's, not, he's been working on a different time schedule, they jump in. Uh, the two unions merge into become the United Farm Workers um, in, in, during, during the midst of what becomes um, a seven-year strike. And between 1965 and 1970, um, they're on strike, it becomes an important national and international story. And the way that the strike is really won is not in the field where they are outnumbered and it's very difficult to actually shut down the production of grapes, but through what people may remember as the grape boycott. It was the first grape boycott, first of several. um, And for several years, um, Farm workers from California spread out in key cities in, this, in the country and even a couple overseas. And in conjunction with labor leaders and religious leaders and students, um, this is you know, the, the late 1960s, so the height of the student movement, um, urged people not to buy grapes and put pressure ultimately on supermarkets not to buy grapes. And eventually, over the course of five years, by the summer of 1970, um, the pressure on growers to sort of end what has become a very chaotic situation for many of the supermarkets who have workers in their aisles and priests praying over grapes and people dumping grapes and, you know, all sorts of things that are, are, are hurting their business. So in 1970, in the summer of 1970, uh, basically all the grape growers come to the table um, in, in negotiations that are mediated largely by the Catholic Church, actually this is the Catholic Church, and sign uh, contracts in the summer of 1970.
0: Cesar Chavez, an enormous became, victory. He became pretty famous during this period. Cesar Chavez did. How did he wear that fame? How did he handle it?
1: Yeah, so, um, you know, probably the most iconic photo of him is taken during this period in 1968 when he embarked on the first of what would be three lengthy fasts. Uh, This was a fast to reinforce the commitment to nonviolence among workers when things were sort of not going that well with the strike. And there's a very famous photo of Bobby Kennedy coming to Delano to break the fast with Chavez just a few days before Kennedy declared that he was running for president. Uh, and that event, that fast, really catapulted him into the national um, spotlight. He's on the cover of Time magazine in July of 1969, and you know he he used that very very effectively to continue to generate support, both financial support and um, political support, and 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 will. Um, to, you know, ultimately maneuver to get contracts.
0: In the past, you have described Chavez as complex, multifaceted, uh, and also somewhat flawed. Tell us more about um, what he was like in those areas uh, as a person and and a leader and manager.
1: So I I think um, I I always say that, you know, heroes... Heroes have flaws and and those flaws don't take away from their their heroic acts and their importance in history and Travis is is no exception to that. And he becomes, um, you know, as this movement grows and as he has to figure out how to run a union and an organization and make that transition from movement to to union leader, um, he struggles with that a lot. Um, he becomes, like many charismatic leaders, not necessarily the person best suited to run the organization that he built, but not able to walk away from that. And so they're, they're, um, the union has a lot of very strong years after those contracts get signed. They lose them. There are fights. They get what is Um, the strongest labor law until recently was the only labor law in the country protecting farm workers in California. Uh, they win elections and there's a lot that develops in that period in the 1970s, uh, that are, that are major victories for workers and also, um, he's building a generation of organizers and people who are, are drawn and lawyers and teachers and students who, you know, flock to Delano to be part of this very, very exciting movement, um, and he struggles to maintain control of that. And he was a very controlling person, and um, is sort of this does not play to his strength in some ways. Um, and so things as as it becomes as the union becomes, you know, ironically as it becomes more successful and really gets to the point where it. Could be a, a, an ongoing, a much more traditional labor union. That is not what he wants. And there are tapes of this where there's sort of agonizing decisions, discussions among he, him and the executive board and its top leaders, where he talks about the the choice that they have to make between being a, a, a movement and a union, and that for him the important part is the movement. And so he moves the union to a very isolated, remote headquarters in in the, the Tehachapi Mountains, away from the field. People question that, even not as early as 1971, and um, wants to build a community and sort of um, becomes, veers off into all sorts of things, including an association with Synanon, which was a, a, a drug treatment program that had turned into a cult, and they, they play sort of, what very destructive in many ways gain but something called the game. Uh, and it becomes in some ways, you know, a cult like organization or takes on some of those aspects as he kind of struggles to figure out how he can maintain control of all of this and, and also, you know, do the things that matter to him, which is, trying to improve the lives of poor people.
0: Cesar Chavez also took uh, pretty strong criticism for what was said to be support for the uh, dictator in the Philippines, Ferdinand Marcos. Tell us about that part of his life.
1: He did. That's that's also in this period where things, you know, the wheels are coming off a little bit, and, and, and he is really sort of struggling to hold this all together and kind of going, looking at different things. Different ways, and one of the problems within the union was a lack of support um, for, for among the Filipino workers. Many of whom felt that they were not treated as well um, by the largely Mexican leadership. And so, in an effort to, uh, you know, in a very misguided effort to generate support among the Filipinos. He goes to the Philippines in 1977 as a guest of Ferdinand Marcos, um, and even under attack later on from sort of doubles down when that is criticized by many, including a lot of the religious leaders who had been among his big big supporters, and um, you know just does not acknowledge that there's a problem there at all. So so things you know gradually um the the, the, the the as it you know, partly just as it gets larger and larger and more potentially important um because at the same time I don't want to underestimate the point that that the growers are fighting back and they don't want this union and so so there's there's so many conflicting pressures on him at that point in time that um that, that a lot of fishers begin to to emerge.
0: I meant to ask you another question about uh, politics. Over the years, how did Cesar Chavez respond to those who suggested he was a communist or at least had communist sympathies?
1: Yeah. So I, I mean, that was part of the general red baiting of that error, I think. And uh, it was, you yeah, know, there was there was never any indication, and he was never even. Uh, there was a lot. There are big FBI files on. On him, just as there are on 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 you know every group in that era but um but he he sort of reacted with indignation and 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 dismissed it um um there were also you know one other thing I just think we should mention here is that there were attempts on at his life there were I mean, remember this is a time during the period where um you know was assassinated and uh and King is assassinated, and uh, there were some, you know, crazy threats and people floating around, and so some of that feeds into his um, kind of you know, growing paranoia about people being out to get him, um, because there were people who were out to get him.
0: How did he spend his uh, final years, Cesar Chavez?
1: Well, so the, the, you know, I'd say that the the height, we, we, we sort of glossed over this, but in the 70s, you know, the union really does um, become a very important force in California, particularly um, for workers and for workers' rights. And then as, the, as things begin to, to fall apart a bit, um, there are these purges and most of the original people who were important and many of the key organizers either leave voluntarily or or are forced out. And many of the worker leaders who emerged in the, in the early 80s uh, also end up fighting with the man who they, you know, who, who sort of created this, this, this organization in a very difficult time for, in, in those years. And then the Republicans take control in California, and they proceed to um, put people in positions of power to thwart the union as much as possible. So, you know, it's it's a weakened union at a time of, of greater political opposition and much less sympathy uh, we get into the 1990s and a lot of the, the anti-Mexican initiatives in California. And so he ends up, um, you know, sort of ironically being a, a very important national figure in those years and focusing on um on what has become the growing the Chicano movement, he travels around the country. He does a lot of speaking in the um, in the last years of his life, in the in the in the late eighties and in the early nineteen nineties. Um, and you know, he says, as early as nineteen eighty four, he gives what is you know, one of his most famous speeches, the Commonwealth Club address in which he says it doesn't really matter. I mean, the union at that point had very few members, and he in some ways sort of acknowledges that by saying, and says, you know, it doesn't matter how many members we have now because what we have shown, that the poorest people by banding together can take on the most powerful industry in California, you know, that is a lesson that is now being spread in the streets and in the cities and so on. He's absolutely right about that. And then he further says, you know, in 25 years, the people running the cities in this state are going to look like me. Uh, and he was right about that, too.
0: Miriam Powell is a author, a biographer of Cesar Chavez, author of the book titled The Crusades of Cesar Chavez. Uh, what about his legacy? When you look around the country today, draw that line between his life, his work, and and what we see today.
1: I think there are two important ways in which we see his legacy. One is that there was a generation of leaders and organizers who got their start by working for the UFW. And those people uh, are in, 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 in labor unions, in the environmental movement, in the educational world, all over the country. And they, in turn, have trained people a whole another generation in the techniques and, and, and the strategies that they learn from Cesar Chavez in terms of how to be an organizer and what that means and how to build power uh, among people who don't have it. And so, uh, you know, his legacy is just multiplied by all of these people who got their start in that very, very heady time of the early years and the success and the early success of the UFW. So that's one important way in which we see his legacy. And then I think the the second is exactly what, what he prophesied, which is that, um that latino political power now is talked about you know in ways that um that, that he was one of the few people to to foresee and to and to, to to prophesy back at a time when when they were very shut out of the political process and um and and now we see that that you know partly because of the work that he did in the movement and the, the way the chicano movement adopted some of his his goals and so forth, that that, that has also grown into um, something that is a real force, California. Now, Alex Padilla is the, um, the first Latino senator from California, it took office a few years ago, um, and, and that's just a, you know, a small part of, of a growing um, political force.
0: Miriam Powell, thank you very much for your time.
1: My pleasure. Thank you
0: thanks for listening to the Books That Shaped America podcast. For more information about the series, you can visit our website, cspan.org slash books that shaped America. And remember to follow this podcast so you never miss an episode.